Hi everyone and welcome to Empathy Gaps, an online video podcast focused on creating a safe space to discuss mental health while also working to address the needs of the current mental health crisis. I'm Tiffany Zhang, your host, and today we have a very special guest, Professor Jeff Hancock. Professor Hancock is a professor in the Department of Communications at Stanford University and the founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab, where he and his group study social media's effects on psychological and interpersonal processes. Professor Hancock, thank you so much for being here today and taking the time to join me. Before we start, is there anything else that you want to add regarding to what you do and who you are? No, it's a, just a real pleasure to be here and having conversation with you. Okay, great. So um, basically, I'm going to jump right in with a few questions and then we'll kind of see how it goes from there. So I guess my first question is to kind of establish some background information. Can you please talk about your journey from being a customs officer to a professor at Stanford? Yeah, it was one of those ones where uh, I thought I knew how deception worked. And um, when you're a customs officer, you actually have to deal with deception. And that uh, that really surprised me and made me want to kind of study things more and understand how deception and trust work and how technology might be affecting those. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so then I started my PhD and been working on it ever since. Oh, that's so interesting. Speaking of, I guess, like change, journey and transitions, can you talk a little bit about the trend of social media research and how it has shifted from when you first started to what it is currently? Wow, great question. When I started, it was really all about uh, text messaging. So um, people interacting in chat rooms and, you know, SMS hadn't even really started yet then. And people were really wondering, well, how can people communicate when it's just big text? Like, that's going to be a problem. And so we did a lot of work on how did that change the way people spoke to each other? How did it change the way we understood or maybe even perceived someone else? And then um, I started the social media lab at Cornell. And boom, after that, actual social media started to uh, come around. So, you know, the development of Facebook and, and all the others. And so then it just exploded. And this interest in how we communicate and relate to one another um, has just become exponentially more studied. Uh, we look at well-being studies. The first one was in 20, 2006. And mm-hmm. um, I was asking, well, how does social media affect your well-being? And now uh, there's well over, you know, two or 300 of those studies done uh, a year. So it's pretty uh, crazy how much the interest has changed over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think social media itself has definitely grown very rapidly. Like I remember, or I mean, like I wasn't born during this age, but Facebook used to be like a super big thing, but now it's Instagram and TikTok and all this short form content. And I feel like also three to five years ago, they're also very, confl- maybe now, even now, like maybe three to five years ago, there were very conflicting studies over if social media was truly harmful, I guess. And I feel like that there's a lot of conflicting results, like even now, so I guess like my question is, why do you think that there are so many conflicting results on these studies? Well, that's the, uh, that's the billion dollar uh, big policy question right now, I think, Tiffany. Um, and when I look at the research, uh, one reason there's conflicting results is that we use social media to do lots of different things. And if we do use it in ways that are um, like about doing uh, things that we feel good about ourselves, like connecting with each other um, or expressing ourselves, then that's going to have a good outcome for me. If I use it in a way that is mean or trolling or I'm doing things that are going to make me anxious, like 
you know, stalking someone or uh, news, that'll make me feel bad. And so, because there's a lot a second reason is the relationship between social media and well-being seems to change a lot for different people. Some people, it doesn't matter relative to other healthy habits like eating or uh, their diet or their exercise or their friendships. But for some, it matters a lot. Uh, if you do really bad, they feel bad about themselves when they use it. And for yet others, it could be really important. Like they need it to connect with people or to express themselves in ways they can't do face to face. So there's just like a lot of variability across people, but also in how one person might use it compared to another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in also some studies, like I feel like social media has a very wide definition. Like most studies use, or most studies consider social media as user generated content but YouTube fits in this criteria, but it's like not really evaluated. So I guess that's also like kind of why there are so many conflicting results. So I guess my next question would be like, how can this research be more conclusive? Well, that is really uh, an important thing that we're all working towards. Um, I think uh, two things are probably needed. One is new kinds of studies, or not new kinds, but more studies that do um, experiment in the relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. So these, you know, experiments, longitudinal studies. And then another is theory. So right now there is no one uh, theory or idea about how social media and, and well-being are related. There's all kinds of possible mechanisms. It could be social comparison. Uh, it could be connection. It could be displacement. So there's lots of these different things. And so we don't really have a good um, sort of set of theories about it yet either. So I think both of those are going to be needed for us to, to move forward. And I guess the last one is measurement. Right? Like right now we ask people, oh, you know, how much time were you on social media yesterday, Tiffany? And you <clears throat> say a number. And that's really weird and probably in a couple of ways. One is you're probably not going to remember very well how much time you're actually on it. And there's mm-hmm. lots of evidence showing that. But the other is, um, time is not the most important thing if you're doing something that's really like i said positive and you're interacting with friends that's probably good if you're just watching you know TikToks for a little while it's probably neutral fine and if someone's being really mean to you and you're getting bullied that's really bad and it can take the same amount of time for all those things so that's uh, another thing is like measuring the real diversity of what people do on social media Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I have also, I've also seen articles saying that like, if you want research to be more conclusive, you should focus on like, a specific population like teenage girls who use Instagram heavily. Like, I think that's a very like, specific population. But also, I feel like there are some ethical hoops to be jumped through if you want a good study. Because first of all, like, to establish causation, I, I like learned this in my AP stats class, like to establish causation, you need to like randomly choose from the population and randomly assign, which I feel like some people might not want to like be involved in this right. experiment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's definitely like a long way to go until there can be definitive evidence saying like, yes, social media can like is harmful or like no social media isn't harmful. 
So I think those are just some things to consider. But also like for people who genuinely do have a problematic relationship with social media, I know you had the study about like changing mindsets. Like, can you talk a little bit more about how changing their mindset can help? Yeah, this is um, research led by uh, one of our PhD students here, Angela Lee, and it's called her idea. Um, and the idea there is that uh, we have mindsets about all kinds of things, and they sort of help us understand the world and our relationship to it. So famous one is growth mindsets. If you think, you know, that intelligence is like a muscle, you work hard, you, you practice, um, and you can uh, improve. And if you think it's like a, you're a fixed amount of intelligence you're given at birth, then you avoid practice, you avoid tests, and it's not as good for uh, learning. And so a mindset can be really important. Mindsets for social media are really a, around, do you feel like you're in control of social media? That you're using it to do things you want to do? Or do you feel like it controls you? Mm -hmm. And, you know, th that's a really, really important distinction. We call it agency. People that have high agency, they feel like they are in control. They tend to have uh, higher well-being after they use social media and people that feel like they're out of control, they're, they're addicted and things like that. And so we think that the mindset people have is, is really important. So one reason I worry about the general narrative of like kids your age, you know, Tiffany, you're all terrible because you use social media, you're all addicted mm -hmm. and uh, it's making you bad. And I hate that because it's telling you that when you use these devices, when you use the social media, that it's bad for you and that you can't help it. In fact, you can't. We adults are making use social media, these tools at school and for your soccer and, you know, all kind of, you know, and staying in touch with friends. And so I worry that we are telling a generation of people that this thing is bad for them. And at the same time, setting up the world where we make them use it. So I'd ra much rather help young people think about what their use is and help them develop more control and more of that sense of agency over social media. And that way we'll be less like, oh God, I just spent like two hours and I only meant to spend two minutes. And, you know, recognizing like that we're trying to do stuff with these technologies rather than they're doing things to us. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's like you who said this or maybe like someone else. I've heard people say like social media is like a tool, like you control the tool, like the tool doesn't control you. And I, I don't know if you were the one that said that, I don't know. But like I've also heard of the study called, um, I don't know if you've heard of it before, it's called like Project Awesome from the University of Amsterdam. And I think its findings were similar in that like the researchers found that the mood you are use like the mood you were in while using social media is more influential than the time spent so yeah our, so uh, we would yes there's a great group over there doing that work and we would we feel really similar like, to that on several things and, and yeah i mean i think that's right it is a lot like a tool and we have to be careful so i'm a psychologist and psychologists really think about them like how a person is engaging with like with their own behavior so from a psychological point of view, I do think thinking of it as a tool is a really valuable, powerful way to do it. The limitation of that view that I've kind of come to realize uh, it's an important limitation of my own thinking and work is that 
that second part I said to you, which is that we're setting the world up in certain ways, right? And so we set a world up in which people kind of need to use these tools and these technologies to live their lives. And, you know, if, if you say, Tiffany, we're like, well, you know what, I'm not going to use it, then, uh, which would be, you know, a way of having lots of agency and saying, okay, I'm, I'm choosing not to use this. You probably miss out on some important things. You'd miss out on stuff going on with your friends. You might miss out with school stuff. You'd miss out on like what's going on with Taylor Swift's latest, you know, concert, right? Like there's costs if we don't use it that aren't about the individual. They're about sort of the society and ways to set that up. So from a psychological point of view, I think we should think of them as tools, uh, as, as people that are part of, um, society and citizens of society we should be thinking like okay is this how we want to set up the world do we want to have these being you know for profit or do we want regulation and so i think there's lots of questions above the tool level um so i just want to be careful that we don't just think tool because that makes it it makes it a little too overly simplistic and, and almost a little too easy Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I guess like my next question would be like, why do you think that there's this narrative that social media is addictive? Yeah, there's there's a bunch. Uh, one, you know, maybe the most important is there's you know pretty serious dramatic change taking place in society, especially around kids, but everybody. When there's change like that, when new technologies come around, we often run into this kind of panic where people are like, oh my God, like, what are we doing here? This is, is this good? Is this bad? It seems like a big change. That's probably bad. And we've seen that every, with every major innovation from newspapers to radio, to TV, to video games, to internet, you know, social media. And they, you know, it's important questions. We don't want people being addicted. We don't want people to be, you know, out of control or harmed. Um, and so I think asking the question and, and, and having some worry about it is a good thing. Another reason is, uh, you know, if you talk to any parent, any kid, one of the main sources of conflict these days is like how much time kids and parents spend on their phones and spend on media. I mean, it is really a lot of time, even if you're not using social media, but you're just watching, say, YouTube or you're you know reading on your Kindle or you know, whatever, that's a big issue. And so a lot of times parents and, and kids have these fights. And so there's a lot of worry about like, oh my gosh, I'm fighting with my kid about this, this thing. And therefore they must, like they know I want them using less and therefore they must be addicted. They can't help themselves. Now, of course, we also hear from a lot of kids that they're, they think their parents are also addicted. Uh, that doesn't get talked about quite as much. But. Mm-hmm. So that's the second reason. And the third is a, it's you know something we know about the news. Um, a study that shows that something's harmful to you is going to get lots of attention. And a study that shows that something's not harmful, no one's going to care about it. And it's not because of the science per se, but the way that we have news in our world, which is we more people pay more attention to negative things. And so you know, the media tends to, you know, focus on those because that gets more attention. So it's why there's very few, like, good stories in the news and usually, you know, bad stories. So I think those three are pretty, pretty, pretty big reasons. And as I said, it's important that we ask these really good questions and hard questions uh, 
as kids are using them more and more. But I do worry that the narrative has become kind of dominant and doesn't reflect the really varied findings that we see in the field. Mm-hmm. And also, like, what you said about, like, how social media is, like, kind of new, so people are, I guess, like, more freaked out about it. How does that, I guess, like, relate to the rise of AI? Because I feel like a lot of people, or, like, some people I know, they're, like, also super freaked about AI and just, like, you know what I mean? So how does that kind of, mm-hmm. like, relate to AI? Yeah, well, AI is sort of uh, the next... Um huge uh, change uh yeah people are freaking out there's lots of questions about it i i personally you know we've been working on how ai sits in communication like how it sits between people that are talking to each other for you know seven eight years now i remain pretty excited about it it's, it's there's lots of ways in which this will help people become you know better more effective more ethical potentially from you know, mental health to marketing to, you know, you name it. I, I worry also that um, when you think about deception, that it could be used in deceptive and manipulative ways. So right now in 2023, I can be pretty confident that you're actually Tiffany and it's actually your voice and these are actually your <laughs> words mm-hmm. and questions. Mm-hmm. But not, not, not very long from now, that won't be a guarantee yet. AI could be being used by you or by me to uh, sound smarter, sound more persuasive, be tailored for our specific conversation, and uh, and it can it won't be just text; it will be you know audio, and, and even if we were on Zoom, it could be uh, video too. So I'm I'm a, I'm a little curious and and a little nervous about AI's effect on trust, uh, at least in the short term, but. I, I think like with most things, I believe in people and I think we will adapt and, 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 and find these, this new tool to be yet another new thing we can use to become more creative, uh, more helpful, um, as well as, you know, more problematic. Like you know, all these tools can be used for good and bad. Fire can warm you up when you're cold and it can burn down your house. And, and I think the same thing is, is possible for all these kinds of tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think this kind of serves as like a pivot to my next question. But like in 2020 or yeah, I think October 2022, the Biden administration recently released the blueprint for AI Bill of Rights. I guess like what are your thoughts on this? Right. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that as well, um, because, you know, as I talk to companies that are thinking about deploying AI as part of their service or product, how do we do this in um, ethical ways? Um, and so the, the the blueprint that they laid out, I think, was really good. Um, it it you know, related in some ways to what the uh, UN had also done around this. And I think the idea of, of emphasizing sort of safety uh, being aware of and eliminating um, discrimination and understanding where that comes from. Uh, those are all important. Uh, here at Stanford, we think that um, it should be used to augment humans rather than, than replace them. Um, and some of their um, you know, Bill of Rights has some aspects on that. So I thought 
overall it was it was a really good start um and we have to keep on working on it because since it's it's so new mm-hmm. yeah i think i i guess like correct me if i'm wrong but like the bill of rights doesn't carry like the weight of the law and but yeah it definitely still is like a big step though and i feel like part of it is that ai is like really new and we're still trying to find answers ourselves yeah uh i agree yeah no, that's right it's uh, and it'll be hard for the us to do anything around developing ai law but you know we see the europeans are already doing that so maybe we have to mm-hmm. follow their lead mm-hmm. so i guess my next question is like what do you think our future relationship with social media, AI, and technology will look like in the future? Like, do you see it ever changing? Uh, sorry, do I see what changing? Like, are a few, our current relationship with social media, AI, and technology changing? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, one of my favorite sort of biases was laid out by uh, Dan Gilbert at, at Harvard. And uh, he calls it presentism bias, that the, the way things are now are the way we imagine they will always be. We have a really hard time imagining the future, despite being a really amazing at imagining things, but we really have a hard time imagining the future different from what we have now. And if you were to ask people, you know, in, in say the, the 30s or 40s, what life would look like now, it'd be very, very different. And even if you ask people, say in 2000, what it would look like now, it'd be very, very different. So yeah, I think uh, we definitely will change. We will, you know, adapt and, and start to incorporate these in different parts of our lives. And um, yeah, and no, I see a lot of change, absolutely. Yeah, I think like five years ago, I probably could have like never imagined like ChatGPT or like other AI. But I feel like now I'd argue and say that it's like a prevalent part of our lives, but I feel like, as you said, it's hard to know what will happen, especially if it'll have a positive or negative impact, because I feel like it has a possibility to spiral a lot in either way. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, it's like really possible that, I guess like deep fakes and like misinformation could spiral like really out of control. But like on the other hand, like technological innovation could have the serious potential to like improve and impact your lives for the better. Yeah, I, I think of it the same way to be like, you know, you can imagine misinformation getting a lot more worse that the people that are misinformation purveyors so sort of flood the zone um, and and overwhelm us with misinformation. But they probably wouldn't serve their goals, which are usually to make money or to persuade people. So if they flood it so much that nobody believes anything and uh, no one buys anything, then that doesn't fit their goals. So I, I think there's still some constraints there. Uh, on the flip side, um, you know, you you've mentioned uh, the mental, you know, health uh, issues, especially young people are facing. Your your whole focus on empathy, which is so great, recognizes that there's a huge uh, need for more mental health care uh, in the U.S. but also around the world. And it's really hard to train up a, a therapist, a psychiatrist, a counselor. You know, it takes you know years. Um, and so you can also imagine AI playing a really uh, important role in, in providing more access to more people that don't, don't have it or are unlikely to. Just, just the same as uh, with misinformation, there's constraints there too. Lots of ways in which it could be done unethically, you know, where we're getting people to have relationships with machines. You know, I don't think anybody thinks that's what we want. Um, but there's ways that it could be done where 
you know, it'll help make any interaction that a that a therapist or a counselor or a coach has with a, with, with somebody be that more efficient, that more effective. And uh, and so I, I think you're right. Like there's lots of things that we should be keeping our eyes on and, and lots of things to be hopeful about. Yeah, pivoting from like misinformation to disinformation. I know that President Obama spoke at Stanford about disinformation and its threat to democracy. And he also said that regulation has to be a part of the solution in reigning in big tech. How do you feel about current regulation? Well, uh, despite being the co-director of the Cyber Policy Center, um, I'm still working out you know, my positions around policy. Um, I'm working with a really great group here uh, from you know, law, CS, psych, comm, sociology, where we're really thinking about social media and AI and what we think the policy implications are. And so, you know, when that comes out, we have, we have a couple of papers that we're working on, I'll send that to you. But as of right now, I think it's uh, pretty problematic in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of moving from the federal to the states and all the states are trying to come up with different laws and um, that's gonna make it really messy. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so no, I, I think that it, the current policy landscape is really problematic and mm-hmm. I don't see super easy solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think especially like when you look at, I guess, like European nations, like I think they're more ahead of regulation than the U.S. is. So, but hopefully, yeah. like, hopefully in the future we'll have good, like better regulation. Right. Um, there's hope. I mean... There's a lot of people thinking about it right now, and, and hopefully they can have uh, an impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. And I guess one of my like last questions is like, what is the Stanford Social Media Lab's next area of focus slash research? Right, good question. Um, and right now we've got three areas that we work on, and all of them are really you know exciting and topical, and we're just we're really pleased that. Um, you know, we're able to do work that's at the center of a lot of, um, you know, social debate right now. So social media well-being, which we've been talking about, AI and communication, which we've also been talking about. And then the last is, is misinformation and trust, uh, which we've been talking a little bit about. And there we're trying to develop new um, literacy techniques to help people become, uh, you know, a little bit better at sort of saying, yeah, that's real news. And, no, that's not. I can ignore that. Trying to help. Seniors are trying to help young people, adolescents. You know, we're trying to help diverse communities that tend to be underserved um, but get targeted a lot by misinformation. Mm-hmm. So that's a big, uh, big area that we're working on. And yeah, I think you know we continue to work on those uh, those three big things. And there's so many new things happening each of them that um, I think that's definitely the the three sweet spots for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I guess like. Speaking on misinformation, I'm really glad that y'all are doing like kind of targeted research on misinformation because I am pretty sure that misinformation is like it gains more attention than like real news or like mm-hmm. real facts. Why do you think yeah. that is? Well, it relates to our social media well-being narrative, right? It's it's much more interesting and scary and there will form newsworthy if like misinformation is everywhere misinformation is destroying democracy misinformation is ruining kids you can't trust anything mm-hmm. and 
I think that's really bad because most people, most of the time, don't see, they don't encounter very much misinformation. It's less than 1% on all the studies that we've looked at and the mm-hmm. ones that we've conducted. And so what that means is we're making people suspicious about like a very small part of their um, media diet. That's good, like much less likely to get tricked by a scammer or by misinformation. Um, but it also means that they're much less trusting of actual news, you know, real news, and, mm-hmm. and less likely to be able to say, okay, I, I, I can say that's true. So it's worrisome, and um, we have to, you know, do better uh, and, and stop trying to just say misinformation, misinformation. That'd be really good. Mm-hmm. And what role do you think that lying, social media, AI, disinformation, misinformation, like all the things we, we were talking about will play in the 2024 election? All of them will be, uh, will be at play. Um, the, the good thing is that uh, we know a lot of the threats um, that are in place. And um, those ones we tend to do really well at protecting against the government, law enforcement platforms, people, right? So there's actually less people were, fewer people were exposed to misinformation in the 2020 election and in 2016, because we knew about it more and we were educating people. But then there's uh, there's new issues that we're we're less aware of, like how will deepfakes work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we establish, you know, what's a real news video versus what's made up? And and so th- there's going to be some, you know, as always, new things. But I'm, yeah, I'm I'm confident that that, that we'll be on top of a number of the big issues. And um, I also think like undermining, you know, faith and voting and things like that is, is really problematic so i hope that sort of stops um mm-hmm. that'll be important so that people believe you know what's going on mm-hmm. yeah i think i really like your optimism and like all your like your very optimistic attitude i feel like some people are i guess like less optimistic but yeah yes many people are less optimistic it could be my <laughs> um you know my canadianness but uh i'm, I'm still feeling uh hopeful and optimistic for you Mm -hmm. yeah so i feel like we had a very interesting conversation today um thank you everyone to coming on or thank you um professor for coming on and speaking with me and thank you to everyone at home watching thank you so much and i will see everyone next time